You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. Amelia Davis is a San Francisco-based photographer and patient advocate whose documentary work has embraced her own story and those of others dealing with illness. She's published three books, My Story, a photographic essay on life with multiple sclerosis, Faces of Osteoporosis, and The First Look, Profiles of Women with Breast Cancer. Amelia also happens to be the sole owner of Jim Marshall Photography, LLC, which is the archive of the late legendary rock and jazz photographer Jim Marshall, and it's in that capacity that she's here with us today. Amelia, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Let me just mention that the body of work that Jim Marshall created back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is like none other. He was seemingly at every important musical event in that era, and he captured some of the most iconic images of Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, the Grateful Dead, Miles Davis, and dozens of others. Music aside, he was also an active documentary photographer who covered the civil rights movement and the Haight-Ashbury scene in San Francisco, which brings us up to today's show. Uh, Amelia, you were part of the production team behind the new film, Show Me the Picture, the story of Jim Marshall, which we saw and we cannot say enough good things about. It's an amazing documentary, a wonderful film. It's really riveting. I am familiar with pictures and I was not familiar with him and this was just mind-blowing. He he was a character, uh, whether you're a fan of the 60s or not, his image is just plain iconic. Uh, And you got to seek out this movie at festivals and take a look for it when it gets distribution because it's it's truly an American story. How did you first meet Jim? What's the background story here? Well, the uh, background story is um, I'm a photographer myself. As as you said, I went to school for photography at UC Davis. Um, But we studied fine art photographers like Cartier-Bresson, Helen Levitt. So I really had no idea who Jim Marshall was. So when I graduated from college, I was starting to show in galleries. And then my best friend that I grew up with Uh, was having her 30th birthday party and invited me. So I went there and there was this little man with a Leica around his neck (laughs) and he uh, shuffled over to me and he goes, hey, how you doing? And I said, I'm fine. And he goes, hi, what's your name? I said, I'm Amelia. I said, what's yours? He said, I'm Jim Marshall. And he goes, what do you do? I said, I'm a photographer. And I looked at him and I said, what do you do? And he smiled and he said, I'm a photographer. And so we started talking and I told him about the breast cancer book that I was currently working on. And he said, wow, I think that's really important work. I have a lot of friends who have had breast cancer. Um, I would love to help you out however I can. And then as we started talking more, it turned out that I lived a block, literally a block away from Jim. And uh, he looked at me and he goes, oh my God, you live a block away. And then he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, are you gay? And I looked at him, I said, yes, I am. And he goes, oh, I'm always attracted to gay women or married women. And I looked at him, I said, that's your problem, not mine. And he laughed and he said, I think we're going to be really good friends. You know, that's so what then- John said when he first met too. He had the same lines on me. <laughs> uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh- <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> and this was all in, in San Fran? This was in, yeah, in, in the San city? Francisco. Okay. This is, it's all and- actually the Haight-Ashbury district, is that correct? No, we were in the Castro, and that's ah, why okay, the Castro right. is a gay area of San yes, Francisco, and that's, yes, that's yes. why he made that assumption, okay. <laughs> which was correct. <laughs> but uh, it was funny when we 
then he called me up the next day. We went out and had coffee and he said, Hey, you want to, I really like you. I need an assistant. Do you want to be my assistant? I said, sure. So we walked over to his apartment and he opened the door and I just saw this hallway lined with one iconic image after another, you know, Jimi Hendrix burning his guitar, Johnny Cash flipping the bird. I mean, the Beatles last concert. And I just was mortified. And I looked at him and I said, I had no idea this was you. Hmm. And he smiled and he said, that's why I liked you. <laughs> and so that <laughs> next 13 years of my life were filled right. with Jim Marshall. <laughs> and did you get the sense that he had had other assistants prior and burn through them or he he, he didn't at that point because he was always so busy. Yeah. Yeah, He had a lot of assistants. He liked having female assistants for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they would always, he was very verbally abusive. And so, you know, he'd call him a name or say they were stupid and they'd run out crying and never come back. And I was the first person who, when he said, you stupid idiot, he looked, I looked at him and I said, you asshole, don't call me that. Mm -hmm. And he just was stunned because he had never had anybody who, you know, defended themselves and spoke back to him. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, sometimes that's necessary and and very attractive. (laughs) Totally, totally. (laughs) Well, I mean, the movie, needless to say, delves into this this side of his character, you know, in depth and uh, it makes... It makes for a very interesting movie because we've all seen, you know, documentaries about, well, not just photographers, but historical figures that are almost puff pieces. And this certainly is not that. I mean, you're blown away by the images and the music and his abilities. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of a straight shot in terms of, uh, you know, his his whole personality. He really was a person of extremes, it seems. I mean, it's, it's like you really had to buckle your seatbelt when you walked into his place, right? <laughs> You do. He, I mean, he, Jim, the thing with Jim is he was a larger than life personality and you either loved him or hated him. There was absolutely no middle ground with Jim. And so he treated you the same way. If he loved you, he would lay down in front of an oncoming truck. If he hated you, he would be the driver in the truck that ran you down. <laughs> and so that's just how his life was. So you did, you had to strap on your seatbelt buckle and just go with it. But I mean, he was a very, if he loved you, he really was a very loyal friend and he did whatever he could to help you. Um, so, you know, and that's, it's portrayed in his photography too, whether it was his music photography or his street photography or his civil rights, he was really able to capture the person through his photographs. He really captured the essence of that person. Um, and I think he did that because he was very empathetic um, and that came through in his camera and what he captured. Mm-hmm. And you, we were talking earlier a little bit about, and this is also in the movie, you know, about just kind of the loyalty that he showed, you know, through his work to the to the musicians and other people that he photographed, uh, not showing images that he thought would make put them in a bad light, just basically burying those images. And and I think it's fair to say that that translates really well when you're dealing with artists and musicians, you know, you have to kind of trust the people you're hanging with, especially if you're backstage and, and everything that's going on backstage. You got a lot of volatile personalities, but yeah. not only Jim, but the people he was photographing, there were some extreme yeah. personalities there too. Um, what was the root of his, his rage for lack of better word? Well, I think he was angry for a lot of different reasons. He, um, his parents immigrated from his mom was Iranian and his dad was a Syrian. Um, so they were immigrants and they, you know, were always thought, uh, thought of as immigrants. So when Jim was growing up, his father left 
left them. So it was just himself with his mother and she worked in a laundromat. And, uh, you know, Jim did not look white. He looked, uh, you know, foreign. He was handsome. He was very handsome, but he looked uh, foreign. He didn't have blonde hair or blue eyes. So he always carried a chip on his shoulder because of that, I think. And that's one of the reasons why he really was able to photograph the African-American jazz musicians, underexposed musicians, because he really felt for them. He's, you know, he felt that they had this talent, but they weren't getting the attention they deserved because they were not white. And so he really always loved to photograph the underdog and and bring that to the public consciousness through his photography and i think it really shows but you know he also because of he was so um angry that led him to drugs and cocaine was a big part of his life and a big part of his downfall um and he was very open and honest about that too and that's one of the reasons why in the documentary we are so honest because you know a lot of times when a, an artist dies the archive or whoever has um, control kind of likes to gloss over things if it's controversial or, or upsetting. But with Jim, you know, that was Jim. You can't gloss it over. Yeah. And everybody knew who he was and loved him because of it. He was very open about all of this stuff. Well, Jim, you know, may have had regrets but he was never ashamed of who he was or his life. And so that's why we said, you know, this is the way Jim was. This is what we're going to do with the documentary. I, I was pretty interesting. Uh, you get into the part where towards his later years, I mean, he would just go on benders where he would leave these little notes in the door and you'd show up yeah. like scrolls. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, that yeah. is. And, yeah. you know, first of all, it, it, you know, it, 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 it's it's tragic and it's, and it's kind of funny, but yeah. it's really... I hate to use the word refreshing, but it was just really, really good to be able to see you going through this stuff, looking back at it and saying, yeah, this is who he was and this is what the reality was. Um, yeah. It's very sobering and it's very honest and it's one of the strengths of this documentary. And Thank also, you. And also, you know, part and parcel of the era that he's, you know, well known for. I mean, his, his story parallels a lot of the musicians that he photographed. Yes. Um, yes. But I, I did want to jump back because you mentioned the jazz musicians and we think yeah. so much of the rock and roll stuff. But, you know, his work prior to that in the in the beatnik scene and in the jazz world. He was one of the few people who incredible. got the trust of Miles Davis, who had yeah. no trust for anybody, really. And he, some of the pictures he took of him were just, well... <laughs> Yeah, you look amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did want to ask this question though a bit, and it, it it kind of bounces off what Alan was asking about, you know, his anger and stuff. Do you think that he? I mean, did photography make him happy? I mean, did did he love? Yeah. Did he, he did. did he look back at his images and his memories with with fondness, or or was he cynical yeah. about it? No, no, no. He loved. You know, photography really was his first and only love, and that's why I think he wasn't able. He had two wives ex-wives. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why he was ne never able to really have a stable relationship with anybody because photography was his love and it was his love 24 seven. But was it a joyous I mean, thing or was it like an obsessive yes, no, love? No, no, he, he, he loved it. And he, you know, his, it was a way of expressing himself like mm -hmm. a, you know, a writer has a, a pen and a notebook and a musician has their instrument. Well, Jim had his camera and that's really how he communicated with the world 
openly and honestly, I think. And that's why he loved it, because it was a vehicle to, to speak to people mm-hmm. and show them a part of him that they may not know. And uh, he, he just always had that camera. I mean, he would walk out the door, even though I worked for him later in life, um, when he was in his 60s, out of habit, he would just pick up his Leica off, of his, off the table and just go outside with it because he was always curious and always looking and he never wanted to miss anything. And I think that's why he, he really was everywhere that mattered mm-hmm. because he always had his cameras and he was always looking. He mm-hmm. had such a curious eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That comes across, and also the documentary does a good point of of talking about his other work, you know, outside of the music world. Um, yeah. Let me ask a little bit about you know running this archive or, or or getting the archive. I mean, was it when the news came down that he had had left this to you? Did, did you were you aware that he was going to do that? Were you happy? Were you willing? Were you? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, a massive challenge. undertaking. Yeah. But you know what? Yeah. It's, not, it's it's the kind of thing you can't just say, oh no, thank you, thanks, but no thanks. Right. You own this. Well, yeah. You do, yeah. <laughs> whether you like it yeah. or not. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Jim uh, never had any children, mm-hmm. and he always considered his photographs his children, which he guarded fiercely when he was alive. And he took care of them when he was younger, and he said, and as he got older, then they took care of him. Mm. So uh, he and I had a couple discussions, and he said, you know, you are the only person I trust to care for my children when I'm gone. So I am going to leave you to care for my children. So when he died in 2010, um, I inherited his over a million children. <laughs> wow. And uh, it's a massive, I mean, it's a massive archive. Jim yeah. works steadily for 50 years. So he has over a million images just in black and white 35 millimeter alone. That doesn't include the color or the two and a quarter. So it's it's massive. And for me, I made a promise to my friend that I would care for his children, and that's what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. um, it's actually, it, it's a little easier now that Jim is gone because he was always a roadblock and mm-hmm. he always would sabotage things. <laughs> so he would get in a rut and just show the same old photos over and over, a lot of his rock and roll. And he was so much more than that. And that's what I'm really trying to share with the world is, you know, yes, he's known for his music photography, but there's a lot of other photography out there that's really important and really important today. We're facing a lot of the same issues 50 years later. You know, the peace symbol is huge and pro to peaceful protesting. And these are things that we're encountering now. So his photography is timeless. Yeah. Are you, you are know? you in the a process of, say, pursuing any of these things, say, shows or exhibits? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. Um, every year we have a show. Um, I try to put out a book every couple years. So since Jim has passed away in 2010, we've put out six books. And so that's another way of, of definitely getting this work out into the to the world. So we do museum shows, gallery shows, books, and we did this documentary because I think the documentary is just an amazing um, tool to really show people all of Jim. Um, so we're constantly working on it. And we do have a companion book to the documentary that Chronicle Books published. Um, and it, it can, it's a standalone book also. It's great, yeah. But, mm-hmm. but if yeah. you've seen the documentary, you know, and you love the documentary, it's a way to take the, home the documentary with you. But even if you haven't seen the documentary, it's a great way to learn about Jim and who he is and see a lot of these photographs that you've never seen before. Mm. And have all the uh, images 
been cataloged? I mean, have, no. have all these millions <laughs> even been seen yet or there's still stuff that no. has to go? No, okay. There's still stuff that needs to come out. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's a huge task and yeah. it's going to take us a long time. Are you digitizing a, a lot of these yeah. images? I, I imagine you have to. Yes, we yeah. have to definitely. And, uh, Jim just hated digital, never did digital anything. So, uh, you know, we're a working, breathing archive. Jim did not endow it. So right. we have to make money to keep, keep it open and keep it alive. Right. And so a lot of that is licensing. So we do, you know, we went ahead and digitized the photographs that were very iconic and that are licensed a lot. And then as we do books, which have photographs that aren't well known and haven't been seen before, it gives us a chance to digitize those as well. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a long process. It's kind of project to project. And, and you yeah. are, I, I can I kind of assume, learning a lot of this on, on the go, right? I mean, because yeah. unless I'm wrong, <laughs> you didn't no run manual. a major archive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you've been going through a lot of photographs. Um, have you stumbled on pictures that just made you stop and say, why did he never show this to anybody? Why is this unknown? Have, has that come, come up yet? Or was he pretty yeah. good at mining the best stuff? He mined what he, he had a great eye, a great eye. But the, but the uh, part about Jim that's amazing is when you look at a proof sheet that has 36 frames on it, um, there may be just one sort of okay frame. The rest are all amazing. And so you're never going to find a bad shot with Jim and his, his images. And so when we look through the images, it's, it's kind of like being an archeologist and going on a dig and you find these treasures and it's really exciting. And that what, that's what keeps me going a lot because I never know what I'm going to find. And then I want to share it with people. Um, you know, mm -hmm. his, his human, his street photography is amazing. I mean, just when he would go out in the street in his early years, when he really was self-taught and just learned through taking photographs, he captured some amazing um, imagery. And, you know, you just, you don't get that today. There's a lot of people that think they're photographers and use, you know, they slam their, their camera on automatic and then put it into Photoshop and fuck around with it. Well, Jim didn't do that. I mean, he had a, a Leica, which was a completely manual. He had to know his his tool really well because it was in the moment that he had to capture something. Um, and I think you just don't find that kind of photographer anymore. He, he also had the advantage that a lot of photographers in this genre don't have today, and that is that there were no rules and no laws about photographing at concerts. You just showed up and you went, and you, it was easy to get around a lot uh, without having you know, uh, you know, people blocking you and uh, you know, badges and passes and all this stuff. It was loosey-goosey back then, and I imagine that worked in his favor because he was able to get in and around and all over the place. Yes, it was. But it was also Jim as a person and as, as a friend. So even though it was loosey-goosey, there were still restrictions for certain photographers. If you weren't in, you know, if they didn't, if the musicians didn't know you and trust you, you weren't allowed backstage. Yeah, certainly you know, the Beatles and, and, and Candlestick Park. Yes. So a lot yeah. of it really did have to do with the person, the photographer, and making that friendship and gaining their trust so that they would allow you into these intimate, you know, circles and these backstage yeah. and into their homes. We're, and, we're, you know, we're, uh, you know, there's a point in the movie where they mention, you know, some of the bands of, of San Francisco in that era, uh, being 
how was it phrased? Like Jim showed up and he was the professional and they were I just the amateurs. I actually have the quote right here. <laughs> Being one of the few local professional photographers, all of the hate bands looked for him for recognition. He was the professional. They were amateurs seeking status. So were these- <laughs> That's the that's line like, in the film. Right, but my question yeah. is, uh, were, were these assignments for him or was he self-assigning and kind of figuring yeah, he out? Was self- yeah, yeah. That, was, that was Jim. And, and by the time he, he started in San Francisco taking photos, he did a lot of the jazz musicians because- you know, the early 60s, rock and roll really wasn't around yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and he established a name for himself on the West Coast with all the record labels. And then he actually moved to New York and he lived there from 1962 to the end of 64 to establish himself with the record labels on that coast. So when he came back to uh, San Francisco at the end of 1964, he was already a well known photographer. And done a lot of album covers, and people mm-hmm. loved his work. So he was an established guy, and it was a great thing that he came back at that point because yeah. that's really 1965 is when the whole counterculture movement started mm-hmm. um, in the Haight Ashbury, and he was living there. And so he, you know, became friends again with these musicians because they knew if you wanted a great photograph, Jim Marshall was the guy mm-hmm. that would give you a great photograph. Yeah. And these were just um, small local bands too. I yeah, mean, you know, yeah. yeah, they were, I mean, the, nobody knew who the grateful dead was yet. Nobody knew who Jefferson airplane was no, yet, you know, or, or the charlatans or, yeah. you know, um, it's just some, so many different bands that a lot of them, you know, didn't make it past <laughs> that yeah. era. But you did have Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead, and mm-hmm. it's just he was right there with them and taking photographs. Yeah, well, it's hard to kind of uh, explain great timing too, you know, uh, yeah. when, when oh, you know yeah. where to go back. But he was, yeah. you know, he was at the right place at the right time. You know, Monterey, yeah. Woodstock, yeah. Beatles' last yeah. concert, uh, Johnny Cash uh, at his two prison shows. Uh, yeah. That's a really interesting part of the movie too—the relationship that he developed with uh, with Johnny Cash, who while, you know, was part to some degree of that rock scene, not really, you know, he was a right. country guy, you know. Um, and then Miles Davis on the other side, That's so right. it's incredible. Yeah. Another thing I noticed from the film that was kind of interesting, he seemed to really have a handle of what he had and where his pictures were, because at one point he says he shot anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 rolls of film. But then he says, roll 40 has Dina Washington on it. Rolls 567 to 79 have John Coltrane. He knew where everything was. He really did. Well, he early on, um, one of his mentors was an, a photographer for the Monterey Jazz Festival. And so what he taught Jim was you take a three by five card, you, you numerically number every roll of film that you take and you put that same number on the proof sheet. So you start out with one, two, three, four, five. And then on a three by five card, you would put that musician or person's name and then every corresponding number of film that that person appears in. So it was very organized, thank God for me, right? But for Jim also being a working photographer, if Rolling Stone called him up and said, what do you got on Jimi Hendrix? He would just take that card out and then boom, he was able to pick out all the images of Jimi Hendrix that he had. Mm -hmm. So he was very, very organized in that sense. Right. And it must be interesting now going back because I'm sure he might have listed this as a Jimi Hendrix photo, but, you know, standing next to Jimmy or in the background might have been somebody else who right. 50 years later is, uh, I guess there's a few people as influential as Jimi Hendrix, but, you know, people who at the time <laughs> might not have been, you know, as recognized or over the years have become more recognized. So there, there may be more value in some of these images that were that were originally thought. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point because he didn't cross-reference. So to your point, yes, if there's a role of Jimi Hendrix and then Jefferson Airplane is on that, um, you know, or if Grace Slick is standing next to Jimi Hendrix, he didn't. He did not necessarily put that on the Jefferson Airplane card. Right. So right, right, right. <laughs> we are always finding things and he when you're to, looking for them. He seemed to be very. Um, uh, he how do you like? He defended his images. He he. I don't know if he litigated it a lot, but is that is that yeah. true? And is that something that you're keeping up? I mean, is it yes, how hard is absolutely. it to kind of keep an eye on the infringements that are going on? It's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a constant battle, mm-hmm. um, and especially with you know the the internet and digital photography now. Oh, I imagine um, his is, work is ripped off left and right, all the time. thoughtlessly. Yeah, People sh- just assume these uh, pictures have been out forever. Who owns them? You know, it's like, right. they don't know. Yeah, no, no, no. And it's it's so hard. I mean, Jim, you know, would go after anybody when he found out about them. But you really go after the big guys because if you go after right. the little mom and pop shop, I mean, what what are you gonna? You're not right. gonna get much, and right. it's not really worth your time. So. I do the same thing. Whenever there's a big, um, big person or company that's ripping off, of course you go after them because I need to let everybody know that there, since Jim has died, there is somebody that still is taking care of his archive and watching it. Mm. Um, so I, I wanted people to know that, that this is, is still a Jim Marshall archive and, and you cannot fuck with it. Yeah. And does that happen kind of, I mean, even at, at the big scale at the big companies that should know better, is it still something that happens regularly? Yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of times with Getty or Corbis, but part of the problem too is with Getty and Corbis is when they buy archives of a photographer, they buy everything. And sometimes in that archive, you know, photographers would trade photos with each other. Mm. They would have each other's images. And if Jim's image is in with another photographer's archive and Getty and Corbis get it, they just assume it's the other photographers mm-hmm. and put it under their name. Mm. And so, you know, once you see that, you're like, nope, that is not. Right, That's right, a Jim Marshall. And, and you can't yeah. use that. Do you have relationships or business relationships with any of the major archives in terms of distributing things or, I don't know. <laughs> how it might work no 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 we just jim jim actually jim was way ahead of his time business wise he he said i'm never going to do a work for hire i'm never going to do a buyout i'm going to own every single image i take Mm -hmm. so therefore he did he owned every copyright so he always licensed on his own he never had um a company license for him it was always jim so he was really good in that sense um, so we own everything, and so people come to us to to license things. And we have, you know, we have great relationships with other archives, and we collaborate on shows or books or things like that. So it's also really nice to have that relationship with these other archives because they we look out for each other also. So mm-hmm. I'll have an archive say, "Hey, somebody's using Jim's image without you know um, saying it's Jim's," and so it's it's a kind of a good tight knit group of. Of photographers. That's cool. That's is it safe to assume you've never pulled a gun on somebody who used one of his pictures unauthorized? <laughs> you know, I've never, I have never, even though I do have Jim's guns and uh, registered them, so now they are registered. Um, no, I've never pulled a gun okay. <laughs> or a knife. I think, I think we're going to have to refer people to the movie to. Uh, yes, you're going to have to. Yeah, you're going to have to. That's right. We're not right, going to give you right. any more clues. You got to go watch the film. So, exactly. can we talk a little bit then about the movie and and yeah, how yeah. you know the where it came? from was it your idea to, to make the documentary did someone come to you uh and and say we got to make a movie about him or or what was the 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 genesis yeah we had been you know we we wanted to do a documentary on jim for a long time and just had a lot of false starts mm-hmm. and then 
when when we did the jazz book on Jim, and I was at Leica London, we had a jazz show that went with it. Um, Alfred George Bailey, who's a British photographer and Leica user, went and saw it, and he was just blown away because he only knew Jim for his rock and roll, not his jazz. Mm-hmm. And so we started talking and uh, hit it off and kept talking with each other over Skype. And he had done a documentary on Gregory Porter, who's a jazz singer. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful documentary. And uh, he said, Do you, have you ever thought about doing a documentary on Jim? And I said, yes. And we just kind of went from there and, and it just spiraled after that. And it mm-hmm. was, and it was really great to work with a photographer that has the same kind of aesthetics because Alfred George Bailey is African American. Mm-hmm. So he shared a lot of the same, you know, views that Jim did. He could see a lot of that in Jim's work mm-hmm. um, and things that Alfred is facing even today, mm-hmm. you know, as an African American photographer. Um, so we just dove right in and started and it went actually very, very quickly. We did the documentary within 12 months. We had a finished complete documentary that wow. we took to the film festivals. Yeah, <laughs> so that's incredible. And well, one of the reasons it went so quickly is because I own all the copyrights to Jim's images. Right. So they were readily available. We didn't have to worry about going after oh, yeah. people and licensing those. I did want to ask about about some of the the. F- you know the film footage that was in the movie and and the music. I guess that was also an issue to get to get the rights to that, or was some of that yeah. footage out there already? It's hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, most of you know when you do a documentary that is rich with images and music, it's really expensive. Yeah. So a lot of the music you, you have to license from the big companies like Warner Brothers or you know whoever owns it, and it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. So that's why we had I think maybe just four very well known songs but then we had an amazing composer ian arbor out of london who did a lot of the background sound he did he composed it himself and it's original sounds and Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing he got he went to budapest and had a 20-piece orchestra record a lot of the background music that you hear so you hear you know kind of violins and cellos and Mm -hmm. um guitars and flutes and it's really interesting because it all ties into kind of Jim and who he was and it's very mm-hmm. powerful and I think it really really works because one of the problems too is if you have hit after hit after hit then it becomes not boring but you know it's it's not original it's not um, something that's exciting that you've never heard before so you kind of start blocking it out yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the other things we wanted to do with interviewing people is There are only a few photographers and a few uh, musicians or celebrities that Jim knew really well. And that was done on purpose because we didn't want it to become something where every single musician is there talking because it becomes more about them than Jim. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And uh, this is, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this question, but, you know, Michael Douglas, for example, is one of the celebrities who speaks uh, on camera. Uh, Was there. Did Jim have enough friends that you could go back to for help when you needed to get footage or music even or, or did talking he burn heads? All the bridges? <laughs> or did he burn a lot of bridges, I guess, you know, was my question. <laughs> did you get anybody say, hell no, I'm not talking to them about that bastard? <laughs> no, no, actually, we were very, very lucky. Yeah. So everybody that we approached, he had not burned the bridge with. And oh, uh, so good. it was really easy to, yeah. to do it. And and with the music, again, you're not dealing with the musicians, right. you're dealing with the Warner Brothers sure, or Sony. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so that's, that's a different 
different <laughs> thing. But did, yeah, did, Michael Douglas, it was great. Um, I, I wasn't sure if he would say yes. And he did because Jim got to know him really, really well when he was out here filming Streets of San Francisco mm-hmm. in, uh, in the early 70s. So it was really wonderful to have him talk about Jim as a friend mm-hmm. and a photographer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and really mean it heartfelt. I really love the, the, the sequence with uh, Johnny Cash's son. Oh, you, you, yeah. really, you really get a sense of, of, yeah. of yeah. something deeper, I think, in, in that moment. Uh, I like that aspect of the movie and yeah, of their relationship, of course. you know, Their relationship, yeah. Well, Jim, Jim uh, when John Carter Cash was seven, mm-hmm. he met Jim. So mm-hmm. Jim was always part of his life right. and he, he saw this larger-than-life guy. Right. But he also saw the heart that he had, a lot like his father, you know, had this rough exterior but really kind inside. Yeah. So, um, and he saw the friendship that Jim had with his father and his mother. Um, And those are some amazing photographs. When Johnny Cash, as you had mentioned, did his live recordings at Folsom State Prison and San Quentin Prison, Jim was the only photographer. Johnny Cash said, I want Jim Marshall to be my photographer for those two Mm -hmm. uh, live you know, recordings and they're incredible. They're yeah. just amazing. I mean, a lot of people would hang their whole career on that. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. that's pretty impressive yeah. right there. Yeah. I wanted to ask, uh, uh about Dwayne Allman because yeah. you know, a lot of people, I don't know, listeners, Dwayne Allman of the Allman brothers, uh, who, who died young. It's mentioned in the movie that he and Jim became kind of tight friends. The word brothers were even used and yeah. kind of surprised me given that, you know, the opposite corners of the yeah. world that they're really from. Differences to some degree. Background, sure. Right. Is there any, yeah. anything to elaborate on that idea? Yeah, well, no, he just, he, he when he makes connections, Jim was very chameleon-like. That's That was one of his secret, you know, sauce things, is mm-hmm. that he was able to um, fit in anywhere with anybody and make them feel at ease. So uh, Jim loved country music and he loved blues, not necessarily rock and roll. And so he really connected with Dwayne on a musical level as well as a personal level. Mm -hmm. And they became very, very close friends. And Dwayne died, God, in 1971, I think. Um, And Gladriel, who we, his daughter, she was two when Mm -hmm. Dwayne died. Um, So Gladriel basically is in charge of Dwayne Allman's archive. And she developed a friendship with Jim And she said to Jim, you know, thank you so much for taking all these photos of my father because I never knew him and died when she was two. She said, but looking through your photographs, I was able to learn who my father was and what he was like. Wow. So that was pretty powerful. And, and you know, she's been a great friend and, um, you know, has just been very helpful with with the archive. Mm -hmm. So it's been great. Can I ask, uh, what, what did you learn from making the movie that maybe you didn't know about Jim Pryor? <sighs> it's an question. interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's asked me that. Okay, um, well, that he really, he did care so much about, I think, really just everyday people and wanted to really photograph that and show it. And like I said, going through, we started on basically proof sheet number one Hmm. (laughs) and went through all of them. And in, in looking through them, you know, there were a lot of kids and, and that was interesting to me because Jim never had children and, um, he was never really, I never saw him around kids. And in a lot of his street photography, there's children, you know, so they're either playing or they're by themselves or, and I just thought that was so interesting because maybe that was a reflection about Jim and how 
lonely he felt as a child. And so whenever he saw that, he would kind of capture it. Um, and so it was, it's sad in a way because he really did feel alone and isolated um, when he didn't really need to because he did have a lot of friends who cared deeply about him. But I don't think he really realized that, that mm. he was not alone. Yeah. You know. Hmm. Hmm. So, well, it's kind of, I mean, there's a lot of there. Are, there's a lot of bittersweet aspects to the movie, needless yeah. to say, and, and that kind of yeah. touches on it a bit. Um, we also want to talk briefly uh, or get back a little bit to uh, you know working as an archivist, and I know that you were going to attend a, a conference that has since been canceled, uh, and I guess the theme of your talk was going to be a woman uh, running uh, an archive of a male photographer. If I'm, if right. I'm, and right. uh, is there anything that that comes to your mind that you might want to mention on that on that subject? Uh, I imagine you prepared some remarks that you now can't give and we'll just steal them. <laughs> Have you come across any images that troubled you or bothered you or, or things that you didn't want to show or, or are you kind of open about everything that's in that collection? Well, it, you know, I, I, I made a promise, like I said to my friend, that I would take care of his children and his archive and that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it the exact same way that Jim did when he was alive. So you will find very compromising photographs because he was backstage with these, these guys and he was on the 72 tour, which was the cocaine tour with, <laughs> with uh, you know, with the, the Rolling Stones. Stones. Yeah. So you do, you know, you have photographs of them using drugs, snorting Coke or shooting up. And Jim would never ever think of releasing those photographs and showing them to people. Um, and I'm, I'm following in his footsteps. I will never ever release those photographs or show them because it's just not right. It's interesting um, is that he actually took them though. I mean, and, and from what I'm yeah. gathering, when he was taking these pictures, he knew these were not going to be for general consumption, but he took right. them anyway, even though they're theater, theoretically never going to see the light of day. Right, right. Well, that, I mean, history. it was- Yeah. Yeah, it, it was just history that he was recording. Mm. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, interestingly enough, the photo of Johnny Cash flipping the bird- um, the famous most ripped off image ever. Um, <laughs> Jim actually did not show that until 1989. I know it's in our culture fabric right now. Right. We think it's been there forever. But Jim was respectful to Johnny Cash and didn't want to show him flipping the bird until Johnny Cash asked him to show it. And the reason he asked him to print it is because he was being looked over from uh, winning a country music award for his album and he wanted to send a message to the music industry so he said hey jim i want to use that photograph of me flipping the bird and he took out an ad in billboard magazine of him flipping off and it said johnny cash would like to thank the country music industry for for <laughs> recognizing johnny cash's album oh, i love it that's great that's great and, and it, that was actually your first time is that, that the uh, <laughs> what are the uh, of the images that are requested for use is is that the top of the list or are there, uh, that's I mean, I a can biggie. Assume, yeah, yeah, that yeah, one, that yeah, is a big yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. By the way, you know, I think it's, uh, I'm looking at little takeaways I have from the documentary and there was one you know, interesting little thing that caught me is that Dennis Hopper, uh, modeled yeah. his photographer character in apocalypse now after Jim. Yeah, he did. Well, that was from Dennis Hopper was a photographer himself. Yes. Oh yes. Really good. Yeah. And, uh, he went to a lot of these concerts. So he was at Monterey pop which was 1967. And Jim has these photos that you will see. Oh, yes. Uh, with that. Dennis Hopper oh, yeah. with Brian Jones and um, Nico. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're all just 
out of their minds on acid. And oh, yeah. Michael Zagaris, who uh, is a photographer and Jim says in the mo- in the documentary, he even says, you know, Michael Douglas, I mean, not Michael Douglas, Dennis Hopper probably modeled the character on Apocalypse Now after Jim because that's what he thought Jim was like when he was on acid <laughs> at Monterey Pop. Just, you know, can you imagine? But it is. If you watch Dennis Hopper, that's the way Jim was with like five, mm. six cameras around his neck, always yeah. going up to people saying, hey, man, hey, man, can yeah. I take your picture? Let I'm, me take I'm your watching picture. the movie again just to watch that one. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, I mean, there's a couple of things here I have in my notes, which, you know, we're talking a lot about a very, very uh, uh, a complex, volatile personality here. Uh, but there's a couple of things here towards the end of the documentary that were mentioned that I, I jotted down. And it really, these are working plans for any photographer, any professional, anybody who really cares about what they are doing. Uh, and it's not just photography. And I call this the gospel according to Jim Marshall. <laughs> Listen to your instincts. Yeah. Be true to yourself. Don't bullshit yourself. Keep it simple. Know your equipment. And here's a biggie. Respect your subject's trust. Yes. Get closer, yes. closer, closer, damn it. And then protect your work no matter what. And yeah. those are really, really very good guidelines for a business plan, for a, a, a way of life of doing things properly. So he might yes. have been a lunatic, but he had some very, 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 very strong principles that he worked from. He did. And he really, really did. And one of the things too in that when he says get closer jim used fixed lenses on his leicas and he he didn't have a telephoto lens he worked wide angle he was right in your face right and and so i think that was one of his main things that he always told people is the 50 millimeter and the 35 millimeter lenses were his, he loved those because it forced him to get close and really get these intimate shots that you would not be able to get if you had a telephoto lens. Exactly. And uh, it really shows that interaction and that intimacy that you wouldn't get unless you were that close. And a, I telephoto, think a telephoto is, an e- is eavesdropping a wide angle lens. You're in the conversation. That's the exa- difference. Exactly. And, you know, I like to also say when I look at Jim's photos, I never feel like I'm a voyeur looking in. I feel like I'm a participant and I'm part of that that photograph because they were so close and so personal. You feel like you're right there with Jim, yeah. you know, yeah. seeing mm. what he sees. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think that's very important. And he, he always said if he were going to teach a class, those were the only two lenses that they would be allowed to shoot with. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. Mm. yeah. Great. Makes sense. Um, can I ask a quick question about uh, your own work? Uh, is it all on the back burner now with this taking over your life? Or yeah, are question. you, are you yeah. shooting? Uh, is it inspired you to shoot more or is it just no time? There's no, Jim is 24 seven. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it really, yeah. I mean, yeah. I do eventually want to get back into it because it's, it's, it's interesting. My, my photography was different, but not really because I, used the camera as a tool to shine a light on subjects and things that uh, people had a preconceived notion of what it looked like. And especially when you look at something like multiple sclerosis, which I have, um, I'm fortunate enough that I don't have any permanent damage or disability, 
but I still live with it every day. Mm -hmm. So people look at me and say, God, you look completely normal and healthy. And I said, but that's the point of why I'm doing what I'm doing is to show you that we really don't know from someone's outward appearance what's going on inside them. Um, And Jim, it's it's funny because Jim really loved what I was, he said, what you're doing is you're documenting things and people. And it's really important what you're doing. So in some ways it was very similar. We were documenting things um, and sharing it with the world. But at the t- same time, it was it was something that was hard to do. And uh, Jim would always introduce me whenever we'd go anywhere. He'd say, this is, he called me Davis. He never called me Amelia. I have no idea why. <laughs> <laughs> so he would say, this is Davis. She's the disease photographer. <laughs> and that's how, we, <laughs> that's how he would introduce me. And I'd say, Jim. And he's like, but it's true. <laughs> so, that's great that, yeah but when Jim uh, when Jim died it really got put on the back burner and um, you know this is my life but yeah. I'm happy doing it because Jim was such an incredible photographer and photojournalist and really documented pieces of history that it's it's amazing to go through this and to be in charge of this archive that's so important um, and that needs to live on well beyond my lifetime. Yeah, that's so the next question. So one of the question. things yeah, yeah. you know I I think about is where is it going to go after me? Mm-hmm. And um, I really want to place it in an institution that will be able to care for it and take care of it. But also, if I place it within an institution, it can't be locked away and never shown to anybody else. So yeah. it needs to be able to be accessible for research if people wanted to research things, and also have a certain amount of um, exhibitions each year. So it's it's going to be a place that doesn't just lock it away right. because like i said it's it's too important for that to happen can, yeah. you can't yeah. even imagine yeah. some of yeah. these images i mean them being locked away they're so yeah, you know, no, these, these are so yeah. iconic yeah and uh, what's the next steps with the movie i, I you're still i mean it's i saw it at a, at a screening here in the city and yeah. people loved it uh, you, you know you have all the pieces together for for uh, what hopefully will be a successful you know theatrical run is that the yeah. plan yeah, that's the plan. We, yeah. um, we've been showing in um, festivals across the U.S. and in Europe. Um, we've won the Audience Award, Award at San Francisco uh, International Film Festival, which was great. Mm-hmm. That's the best coveted award. Um, and we actually do have a U.K. distributor. So it did a the- we had a theatrical release in the U.K. in January, mm-hmm. and we got rave reviews. People loved it. Um, it's actually right now in theaters in Italy. We had an Italian distributor oh, and a okay. Russian distributor, but we still do not have a U.S. distributor. So, um, you know, it's, right. it's a little upsetting, but I like to say that's the way Jimi Hendrix did things. You know, he got big and <laughs> <The beginning laughs> Europe first, yeah. and then came here. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll find a U.S. distributor that believes in it and loves it. And so it's, I think it's very important to do a theatrical release, even though everybody does streaming service. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still something really magical about going to a theater and seeing it on this huge screen. Mm. Um, and it just jumped, you know, Jim's, images just jump off that screen. So um, we are still looking for a U.S. distributor. And if, if you're out there and listening, come and say hello. <laughs> well, it's well worth watching, that's for yeah, sure. it really is. And it's like no other documentary, I think, on um, a photographer in the sense, like we were saying, it's very, um, it's very personal, very raw, and very real. And you don't get that a lot. And it's, it's a coaster ride. But at the end, you're you're cheering for Jim. 
Yeah, absolutely. By absolutely. the way, one last little note here that uh, Jim Marshall holds the distinction of being the only recipient of the Grammys Trustees Award, uh, special merit for chronicling music and history. So that's kind of unique right then and there. Yeah, that was great. That was awarded posthumously in 2014. Um, and one of the reasons they did it is because they said it's not that they never wanted to give a Grammy to a photographer. They had just never found the right photographer. So Jim, uh, what's great is he didn't just photograph rock and roll. He didn't just photograph country. He photographed every kind of music. And starting from 1959, when the Grammys were founded and first started, to 2004, when he got the award, he had photographed at least one musician every single year of the Grammys. Wow. So, yeah, that's that's a great, great honor. And, you know, when you put his his uh archive together it's it's pretty much the archive of five or six different photographers i mean he just has such a massive archive and such a diverse archive and really chronicled music um as well so that's it was it was a really great distinction to get great all right yeah so um, if, shall, now, if we're uh, okay let, uh, what about uh uh seeing uh, your work and jim's work uh, we're going to have all of the links by the way on, on our, our show notes page uh but where should people go if they want to see more of your work and jim's work well jim's work definitely go to our website which you'll have on there and we you know we have a instagram account and a facebook and and on the instagram i love to uh we dive into some photographs so we'll do um dissect a photograph and uh go into it really close and talk about the what people are wearing or what hmm. what you know kind of guitar they're playing and things so that's that's fun so definitely sign up to our instagram account and that's and follow jim, us. is it jim marshall or jim marshall llc what is the instagram it, um, the instagram is jim marshall photo okay okay great great yeah and, and so it's, it's good and, and then my my work is out of print right now because it was done <laughs> <laughs> far back um, but if you can find it, uh, it's, it's, it's good. Um, especially the breast cancer book is very important and still is. Okay. Um, it really, you know, shows, shows women what they look like, which is something that, um, needs to be shown and talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Show me the picture, the story of Jim Marshall, the, the film and the book. So let's take a look for it. Yeah. Great, great stuff. Again, we've seen it. Uh, we were blown away by it. Uh, it's a kind of, it's a kind of uh, film uh, documentary that you actually want to see again because there's yeah. so much there and it's well, well worth it. Uh, Amelia, thank you. Or excuse me, Davis, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us today. <laughs> and good luck. Continue with, uh, with this project. It, it, it's, it's a great endeavor and you're doing a great job with it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for allowing me to take up some of your time and talk about Jim Marshall. <laughs> our pleasure. Our pleasure. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For links to gear and more information on today's guests, check out the show notes in your podcast app or visit our homepage on the B&H Explorer website and join the B&H Photography Podcast Facebook group. And now, back to the show. 
Elliot Landy began photographing the anti-Vietnam War movement and the underground music culture in New York City in 1967. And in 1969, he was the official photographer of the Woodstock Festival. His images of Bob Dylan and the band, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Joan Baez, Van Morrison, Richie Havens, and many others, documented the music scene during that classic rock and roll period. Elliot's iconic photographs have graced the covers of some of the most influential albums in rock history, and he has shot a wide range of subjects and styles, but it is behind-the-scenes and everyday-life photos of Dylan, Van Morrison, and specifically the band taken in and around their homes in Woodstock, New York, that we're going to talk about today with Elliot, along with a Kickstarter campaign. He just started to publish a deep-dive book of images of the band, and this is the second uh, book that he's doing on the band. This one is All on Contact Sheets. And that's what we're going to be talking to him uh, about today. Elliot, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. That's a great introduction. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, th- this is pretty exciting. What you, Now, you came out with a book some years ago about the band that was very, very successful. And what made you go back and, and take two of this, take it to the next step? What was, your, uh, what, what was the seed for this? The uh, the boxes of outs that I looked at after the book was printed, I after the first book was printed, I went through, uh, I, I had uh, all the prints that were in the book in one box. Uh, my process for making books and anything I do, actually, is to make a, a proof print first. 8 by 10, it used to be, now it's 8.5 by 11. And I look at it for a while and decide if I like it or not. So to make the first band book, I made like over 600 proof prints. Wow. And f- <laughs> and from those proof prints, I selected 300 or so that would go in the book. Um, before the 600 proof prints, we went through 12,000 negatives, and I picked around 1,200 of them that I looked at on the computer screen. So in the end, I wound up with basically two sets of, of proof prints, one that was in the book and one that was not in the book. And then I started going through the ones that were not in the book shortly after it was published, and I, and I, I said, well... This picture is in the book. That picture is not in the book. Why isn't this picture in? And so all these pictures that are really good photographs didn't make it because we had a page limitation. Also, I wanted my band book to be easy to read and 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 hold and comfortable. And I felt that if a book is too heavy, yeah, you'll look at it once in a while and so on. But it becomes a burden. At least for me, it does. Hmm. Uh, so I so I limited the size, the number of pages, and so on, and the weight of the book. Uh, for that specific reason of it, uh, uh, just to make it comfortable. And for the new book, for the the Kickstarter campaign, it seems to be doing pretty well. Yeah. When I saw all these great photographs, I knew at some point I was going to have to do another book. It's been about four or five years since the first book came out. And uh, so I I was, uh, maybe six or seven months ago, I started to actively consider what uh, you know uh, doing a second book and then my wife came into the studio one day as i was surrounded by contact sheets and prints and she started looking at the contact sheets and she says you have to do a book of contact sheets she says this stuff is so fascinating and so interesting yeah. that that fans of the band will love it yeah so uh and, and then she said and and you can call it co- contacting the band mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah i and and then i so i then i i looked at the contact sheets and uh, I looked at it and she's absolutely right. As I get 
deeper into these contacts. Jeez, I, I myself am fascinated by them, even though I was there yeah. and took them and have seen them many years ago. But as I go through frame by frame, I, I see the, it's like a documentary of, of what was happening that day, actually. Right. And really fascinating. So I'm surprised that I'm so fascinated with it, actually. And uh, uh, what was, you know, your relationship with the band over, you know, over how many days and months did you shoot them? See, I was photographing peace demonstrations and, and the alternative music culture in the city at the Fillmore East. And then I photographed Janis Joplin, who was managed by Albert Grossman. And then he asked me uh, to photograph uh, this new group of his. And I said, what's their name? He said, well, they don't have a name yet. We don't know what they're going to be called. And it might be the Crackers. Uh, and I like so, that. <laughs> so the first time uh, I met the band was in, 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 in Canada. Um, near Toronto, outside Toronto, where they wanted to do a a, a, a photograph of of their family uh, members and as it as an homage to them. Let's say, homage is maybe you pay an homage to people that are still alive, sure. or, or you have to be dead to be homaged. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you get a thank so, you if they're still alive. If they're dead, there's no response. <laughs> So it was a thank you to their to, to, to their families for supporting them uh, in their lives as kids and so on, and and uh, helping them get to where they were now, which was to have a, an album by a major record label. Um, so I went to Toronto, and we did that on on Rick Danko's uncle's farm, and uh, then this, and then a, a week or two later. I went up to Big Pink. I took. I was living in Manhattan at the time, and I took a bus up to Woodstock, and, and they met me and brought me over to Big Pink. So that was the first time that I saw them at Big Pink. And we spent the day just taking pictures around Big Pink, and maybe we drove a little bit here or there, but not far. Um, my my uh, my strategy, my my way of taking pictures of someone is usually to photograph them where they live. So that's what we did. And then uh, after that session, I went back to Manhattan. I processed the film. I always I processed all my black and white film and made my own prints and contact sheets. Um, and I I made proof prints of the ones I thought were best. And I went back up to Woodstock and I met with them. And they ever looked at pictures and so on. And and they said, well, these are really good, but I don't. We don't see the a picture we want for the album. So. I came back up, and the pictures were really good, as you see but now. So, so this was definitely this was an assignment for an album cover at that point. You, you kind of knew about no, the, it. No, it was not really an assignment. It was yeah. casual. You see, that's okay. the thing. In those days, we didn't do everything wasn't official and wasn't written down at right. all. It was like um, Albert said to me, I, "I need photographs," and that's it. Uh, there was no contract at all. But were you thinking album cover, or you were just thinking, "I'm going to take some pictures"? And, and well, it wasn't yeah. going to be album cover yeah. because from early on, they told me that the cover of the album was going to be a painting by Bob Dylan. Okay, and then and my picture was going to be on the inside. It was going to be a, an open a, an open fold album. You know, mm -hmm. we open it up, and it's going to be like in the middle. And when I remember when Albert told me that the cover. Uh, was going the cover painting was gonna be by Bob Dylan. That's that's when I remember realizing, oh, I'm gonna be well known, and that was the first time that I had any any realization that my work was gonna be known, or that um, uh, it was gonna be seen by a lot of people, and that's so cool. on. That's a good feeling. So, yeah, so, and yeah. Uh, so a lot of the shots that I've seen, you know, the band are there's some of them playing football, there's some of them in the stream, and it was just kind of let's go and. 
let's just work this. Let's see what we can get out of it. Regardless, that's of, exactly yeah. that's exactly right. We yeah. just did the second time I went up again. We uh, we went to some different places, and at that time, uh, Levon and Rick had moved to another um, house. Uh, they were no longer living in Big Pink. Um, and so I took pictures around there in their new house where they were living, um, and around that. And so very, very casual without any kind of thought or planning, uh, just, you know, let's see what we get. And same pattern. I went back to the city, made proof prints, came back to uh, meet with the guys and they were beautiful photographs and they all loved the photographs. But they said we still don't see uh, what we want for the album. Well, it's interesting you should say they didn't. They didn't see an album cover in there because these are the photos that have kind of come to define the band. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. style, yeah. them well, standing together, well, that look. Yeah. That, that's the reason that we kept working together because the pictures were really great photographs. Uh-huh. And I liked them and they liked them a lot. So by that point, after the second shoot, and then I had gone up there and hung out with them. We got very friendly. They said. Uh, anytime you, anytime you want to come, you can just come and sleep over. You can hang out, whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. I had card plan. And they also had decided that they wouldn't allow any other, anyone else to photograph them during this period. Oh, cool. I'm very unobtrusive. I'm very non-invasive. I would say I, I, I work with a very feminine vibration, which is, which is just to be receptive and just to, just to fit into what's going on as opposed to controlling things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they like that after the second shoot, um, I had to think about, well, okay, what, what would be a good photo of these guys for an album as opposed to just taking pictures and seeing what happened? Um, so I had just, uh, gotten a book of civil war era photographs, Matthew Brady school of photography and, and seeing these, these beautiful, beautifully composed pictures where the, the subjects are part of the landscape and the landscape is a major part of the photograph and you have to go back and look at these pictures if you're not familiar with them. They're really special, gorgeous photographs. And uh, I also had gotten to know the guys in the band. And the guys in the band were unusual. Uh, I, I, I knew other other people in other bands, and they were all very nice. I don't have issues with anyone I met in those years. But these guys were very, very uh, aged, I guess, like fine wine. <laughs> they had been on the road for seven years already. <laughs> you know, in, 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 if you read any of their any of the history of the band, they've been just all over and, and experienced pretty much what the road is like, the rough road, we'll call it, right? And dives and, and big concert halls. Um and they were they were very seasoned is the right is the word. Right. They were also very connected to the earth. They were all from rural Canada, uh, except for Levon, who was from rural Arkansas. Right. And I realized that that this style from the eighteen fifties eighteen sixties photography um, suited them because those photographs were grounded. They were the the photograph was a part of the landscape. The landscape was important. The grounding of the people, the the people in the pictures look like the landscape in some way. Mm-hmm. They had the same grittiness, the same, um, the same vibration, let, let, let's call it. They were very solid people, yeah. just like the mountains are very solid. And so I saw that and I said, this is the, this is the, this is the style that I want to do this in. And I, I, I showed, I showed it to the guys and they agreed that that would be a very good idea. So then I went up there for a third shoot and, and we drove around for a while for a day or so, or I don't know how many, half a day and to look for the right landscape. Uh, and I didn't see it at all. 
And and we were, I, of course, I took pictures uh, here and there. And we kind of gave up and went back to Levon's, the house Levon and Rick were sharing at the time. And we're hanging out in the living room of the house and I look out the window and there it is right out the window in their front yard. You know, the, the, I, I just knew the moment I saw the landscape, I said, this is it. It was very clear and obvious to me. So then, uh, we went outside to take pictures. Uh, and I told them, I said, look, in those years, when a photographer came by the, the people who were being photographed were honored by it. They, they honored the photographer. It was a special moment and they paid attention to what the photographer wanted they stood a certain way and, and so on. And the, the photographer managed the shoot. So that's what I did. And, and, uh, I, um, and I told them to stand here, to stand there, but I let them be free. And, and you can see in these contact sheets, that's what's so fascinating. Actually, when you look at, for me, so fascinating, you look mm -hmm. at the contact sheets and you see they're in all different positions and areas and this, and, and, um, uh, they're standing one, one on one side, one on the other side. And also, these are people that don't like to be told what to do, okay? They're very strong personalities, obviously fantastic, creative people. Um, and and I still had to be, as I said, I'm not a bossy person. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I still had to be very gentle in organizing things. I didn't say, you stand there, you stand there. Mm -hmm. That's just not my style to do that, nor is it their style to be talked to like that. Sure. <laughs> so, Perfect match. Uh, yeah. So basically, I let things kind of, coalesce is that the word yep. yeah yeah around evolve uh, everything what, come together evolve. yeah right and and this is what you see in the kickstarter uh i think in in the kickstarter campaign mm -hmm. i i show some of these contacts you see how everything is flowing and moving around and so finally i got i got the rights that the right shot yeah. and uh, what i tell people about my photography is that i'm not a great photographer but i'm a great editor and and it's the selection of the one photograph or the the best photographs that's most important of the contact sheets that you're going to be showing in the new book. Are you going to show everything, or are you going to like excerpt uh, oh, one or two I that you don't? I can't show everything. Yeah. I, I've got I've got there's like what is it two three hundred rolls of film, and then really? there's color and okay. stuff like that. Oh, yeah, wow. that's a lot. So if this one if this one goes over really well, I'll probably do a second one. Why gotcha. not? Gotcha. Gotcha. You, you came up with an interesting comment uh, in your Kickstarter uh, video. Is that um, and it's true. A lot of people who are into the band and all of the other groups that you have photographed uh, uh, over the time back in that day, to a lot of people, their entire experience of visual experience of the performer or performers in this case is that one photograph. But there was a lot that happened before and during and afterwards. And that's kind of what you're showing in these contact prints is sort of like broaden the experience for people who basically are basing everything in their memory on a picture yeah I interesting yeah i said that that's good that's good I like you, well, you had mentioned um you mentioned the, you. their personalities is did you yeah. did you bond with any particular member of the band more than others did did you know anybody really i mean i know a little bit about the band and 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 their personalities and you know uh, they're a favorite group of mine so uh, i'm more curious as a fan i guess but uh, did you did you, you know i i had i spoke to each of them separately in in a unique way let's say mm -hmm. uh i had the most business dealings with robbie in other words right. he was the spokes uh, whenever we uh w when we met to look at the pictures everyone looked at the photographs mm -hmm. but in the end he was the one that brought their decisions to me you know he said well we we like this we don't like that right. and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Cool. um 
But I was uh, I was equally comfortable with all of them. Yeah. Richard Manuel lo- liked using a camera, so we had some <laughs> some connections about that. Mm-hmm. And he also had cats, and we had connections about that. <laughs> <laughs> Safe to yeah. assume that you were shooting Nikons and Tri-X back then? Yeah, I was shooting Tri-X and Nikon and Leicas. I, I used Leicas for normal, for 50 millimeter and wide angle, and then uh, Nikons for 50 millimeter and telephoto stuff. Ah, okay. That's great. And is it, is it also fair to say that the style that you had with the band was typ- typical of when you shot Dylan or, or Van Morrison up there also? Well, you have to see all the band photographs because there's a lot more than just the big pink ones. So, I mean, I can't answer that, actually. You'd have to look at my pictures and, 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 and tell me. But I consider the big pink thing an assignment where... I had to fill a special need that didn't come up naturally. Okay, so it wasn't an organic thing. The Van Morrison shoot, the Bob Dylan shoot, you know, we just hung out. So, Elliot, with the new book that's coming out, uh, what can readers expect to see? They can expect to see the the background of the well-known photographs as well as photographs that they've never seen before. And the book page size is going to be 12 inches by 12 inches, which means that at the smallest, each picture will be uh, 25% larger than one would normally see it on a contact sheet. Mm -hmm. And also, on some of the contact sheets, we're going to make the vertical pictures horizontal also, so you don't have to keep turning the book around to see the picture. Oh, that's the best part. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I'm going to do it on all of them, but I've done it on a few already, and it looks quite nice, actually. The book is going to be put out in two editions. One is a signature edition, which is is, um, the book and my signature on on the opening page of it. It's going to have a little banner around it that says Signature Edition on the cover. And then there's going to be a deluxe version of the book, which is is going to be cloth-bound and cloth-covered. And it's going to include a fine art print that I make myself in my studio. Uh, And the fine art print is probably going to be one of the contact sheets uh, of the uh, the band album or the Big Pink album. So the deluxe edition includes a slipcase, and the signed print, and so on. And it's hand delivered by Bob Dylan, right? <laughs> That's the next Kickstarter. <laughs> That's the next Kickstarter. <laughs> cool. The book is going to be beautifully printed. My first book, the band photographs, of which there's a few left around, um, is go- beautifully printed. I, I spare no time in, in getting it perfect. And so the, the, this will be very rich looking. Where are you having it printed? Is here in the States or overseas? I, I had it, I had the first one done overseas. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a Hong Kong printer, actually. And I expect to have this done there also if, if things work out. The job they did there was just really spectacular. That's, there was absolutely no, no problems with it. It was just perfectly, in my opinion, perfectly printed. It was, it was just great what they did. So. Okay, great. Elliot, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Okay, All thank right. you. Okay, are you not a regular subscriber to our podcast? If not, all you have to do is head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Overcast, or Spotify and sign up. It is absolutely free. And you can always find us on the BH Explorer website as well as the BH Photography Podcast Facebook group. I'm Alan Weitz, and on behalf of John Harris and Jason Tables, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>